Conversations. Hello, everybody. This is Davo here, and you are listening to Med Conversations. I'm joined by the lovely. You're supposed to introduce yourself. I just thought you might have forgotten my name. <laughs> giving you a test. I'm Beck. Thanks for listening, everyone. Rebecca Fusky is your full name. Just showing off my knowledge. <laughs> so this is another episode of the Drug Deal. This name that Rebecca came up with, and she likes to say it like that. So we have to say it like the Drug Deal. <laughs> and today. We'll be talking about angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers, or ACEs and ARBs. ACE inhibitors and ARBs. Yeah, exactly. All right, so just to give you a bit of an indication of what we'll be talking about. So first of all, we'll talk about the renin-angiotensin system and how it can go wrong, what ACE inhibitors do and when to use them, contraindications, side effects, and what the difference between ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers are, and when to use each respective one. And then finally, we'll just finish off with some examples. Sounds like a good plan. All right, so tell me how the renin-angiotensin system works. So go back a step. First of all, what it is, it's a neuroendocrine system that refers to the hormones renin, angiotensin 1, and angiotensin 2. And it does two main things. It regulates plasma sodium concentrations, and it regulates arterial blood pressure. So with that in mind, what, what do you think triggers it? Okay, so we said it regulates plasma sodium concentration, so it's triggered by a lower than normal sodium. Yep, and it's also triggered by reduced renal blood flow, which is kind of like a surrogate marker for low arterial blood pressure. And on top of that, also the sympathetic system triggers it in general. So if you have an overactive sympathetic system, you're going to have an overactive renin-angiotensin system. So take me through step-by-step step the story of how renin-angiotensin does these things. Okay, so once upon a time, the juxtaglomerular <laughs> cells in the kidneys, they, they have pro-renin, and that gets converted into renin. So pro-renin is an intracellular protein. This renin goes and finds an angiotensinogen and cuts off a couple of syllables and 10 amino acids and forms angiotensin 1. Right. So now you've got angiotensin 1. You need to get that into angiotensin 2. So that happens by angiotensin-converting enzyme, otherwise known as ACE. So that's the centerpiece of this system in terms of where the drug affects uh, the system, so ACE. So ACE turns angiotensin 1 into angiotensin 2. Where does it happen? Does it happen in the kidneys? It happens in the lung capillaries. That is a classic exam question. I've seen that a few times. Anyway, so then angiotensin 2, that's, that's, the, that's the workhorse. That does the, all the dirty work. And basically, it's all about increasing blood pressure, but doing that while maintaining renal function. That's, that's the name of the game for angiotensin 2. So how does it increase blood pressure? Okay, so the main, the main way it increases blood pressure is by causing constriction of arterioles mm. all over the place. But in the kidneys... It prefers to constrict the efferent arterioles over the afferent arterioles. And that's because in the kidneys, it wants to, to do two things. It wants to increase filtration, but also increasing reabsorption. So it increases filtration, as you said, by constricting that efferent arteriole, thereby increasing the intraglomerular pressure, which increases the amount of uh, liquid and, or the fluid that is uh, filtered out of the glomerulus. And so then how does it increase reabsorption? I'm not sure, Double. How does it increase reabsorption? <laughs> so some of that just happens by itself because once you increase filtration, you also increase reabsorption naturally because in the peritubular capillaries that have had all this stuff filtered out of them, they'll now have an increased oncotic pressure and a decreased hydrostatic pressure, so they'll just naturally bring fluid back into them. Okay. But, 
But then angiotensin 2 has some other tri tricks up its sleeve. It doesn't just rely on that mechanism. It does a few other things. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, so, so another way that it increases sodium reabsorption is by stimulating sodium proton exchanges, which are located in the proximal tubules. Mm -hmm. It also stimulates the hypertrophy of those renal tubular cells. Yep. Makes them stronger. And it, it increases the release of a couple of other important hormones, aldosterone from the adrenal cortex, which acts on the distal collecting tubules and cortical collecting ducts. So that reabsorbs sodium and water, right? It does, yes. Yep. And the increased release of ADH, or vasopressin, antidiuretic hormone, and what that does is increases the reabsorption of water in the distal convoluted tubes. Just free water, yeah. And collecting dust. So, Just free water. It yeah. inserts things called aquaporins, which are yeah. channels to let the water in. Yeah, exactly. All right. So that's what it does in the kidneys. And then aside from that, it also has some important effects in the heart. So this is more of a long-term thing. So when you've got this overactive renin-angiotensin system for a long time, then you're going to get some ventricular remodeling effects particularly uh, ventricular hypertrophy, and that becomes really important in heart failure. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. All right, so just in summary, because we said a lot of stuff there, what are the four things that the renin-angiotensin system does? Okay, so the whole point of the system is to maintain BP and renal function. So mm -hmm. it increases the blood pressure, increases the glomerular filtration, increases tubular reabsorption of water and sodium, mm -hmm. and increases ventricular hypertrophy. Cool. So that sounds like a pretty good piece of intelligent design. How could it go wrong? How does this cause pathology? Please go on, Darwin. Tell me <laughs> how it could. So basically, it, it goes wrong because we're in this weird environment now in the modern Western world with all this fatty food and all this salty food around the place. It's, a, it's an important part of the pathophysiology of essential hypertension, which is obviously really, really common. It's not perfectly well understood, but we think that obesity itself causes this overactivation of the renin-angiotensin system. And it's also a really important part of the heart failure pathophysiology because, as you can imagine, your heart pump is failing, and so you have decreased renal blood flow, which triggers the renin-angiotensin system, but that leads to sodium and water retention, putting more strain on the heart, causes ventricular hypertrophy, causes increased afterload from hypertension. It's this real vicious cycle that we need to break with our ACE inhibitors. All right. So this is where they step in. This is where the angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors step in. So where is, where is the ACE in that, in that renin-angiotensin story that you told me? Where does ACE live? So that's the enzyme responsible for converting AT1, angiotensin 1, into angiotensin 2, and it lives in the lungs. Exactly, yeah. And AT1 is useless. doesn't do anything. So if you stop angiotensin 2 from existing, you, you stop the whole system, basically. We accidentally discovered it when we were fooling around with South American pit viper venom in 1975, because that's what we did back in those days. Um, and we discovered that we could block the conversion of angiotensin 1 into 2. And so it does, uh, it does two main things. It reduces blood pressure, as you can imagine. Um, but it only does that in people that have an overactive renin-angiotensin system. So, so that's the beauty of the drug. And you and I, with our high-salt diets and our otherwise healthy bodies, we probably our renin-angiotensin system is probably not doing too much. Um, and so if we took an ACE inhibitor, it's not going to make a big difference. But if you've got someone who has essential hypertension, has this really overactive RAS system, as, the, as we like to call it, then you'll cause a really big drop in blood pressure. Yeah, so you, you can draw a parallel with that and with uh, something like metformin, which reduces blood sugar levels in people who have pathologically high blood sugar, but not in those who have normal blood sugar. Mm. So it reduces blood pressure, but then also reduces load on the heart. And that does that by 
reducing the afterload because it reduces the, the blood pressure, but it also reduces that cardiac remodeling. So when would we use it? What are the indications for this wonderful pit viper drug? Okay, so the indications for ACE inhibitors are hypertension and cardiac failure, as we've talked about a little bit already. Mm-hmm. Post-myocardial infarction, as you, as you know, there can be some ventricular dysfunction and some pathological remodeling of the heart. It can help prevent that. And also by reducing the blood pressure, it can reduce the afterload, which improves outcomes in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this weird one, diabetic nephropathy, which doesn't really fit with the others, doesn't really fit with what we've talked about. But if you think about it, it does make some sense because, as we said before, angiotensin 2 increases the intraglomerular hypertension. And the first step in the di- diabetic nephropathy pathophysiology is increased filtration and increasing uh, filtering everything, including proteins. And then those proteins um, cause all kinds of troubles in the, in the rest of the kidney. So if we can actually reduce that intraglomerular hypertension early on, then we can perhaps slow down the whole process because there'll be less protein filtered out. So that's why in diabetics, we look for people that have microalbuminuria. They have some albumin in their urine, which means they're filtering too much already. Slow down that filtration by stopping angiotensin 2 from clogging off the efferent arterial, and you can maybe uh, slow down the whole pathophysiology. And then there's some off-label uses as well. We won't go into that, but scleroderma renal crises and, and sometimes in glomerulonephritis as well. So contraindications. So there were the indications. When shouldn't we use ACE inhibitors? So you shouldn't use ACE inhibitors in bilateral renal artery stenosis. Mm, why is that? It can cause renal failure. So basically, those with this bilateral renal artery stenosis, which is severe enough, um, have their glomerular filtration maintained by angiotensin 2 because of that effect that we talked about where it selectively constricts the efferent arterioles. Yeah, that's right. So if you undo that, if you don't have angiotensin 2, then you going to renal failure. Mm, it's like taking taking away the dog from a homeless person. It's a real kick in the teeth. <laughs> That's all they've got left. That's all that their, their renal, their kidneys are hanging on with and you take that efferent constriction away and away goes the filtration. So that's one, renal artery stenosis, particularly bilateral renal artery stenosis. You need to look out for that in people that have really bad atherosclerotic disease and then you need to look out for that in, in young women with a history of renal artery stenosis. They're the two main groups that you've got to think about. it. And then hyperkalemia, because uh, angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, ACE inhibitors, reduce aldosterone, that means the, they'll reduce potassium secretion and increase potassium in the serum. So if someone's already got high K, high potassium, then giving them an ACE inhibitor will will send it up further. So you want to avoid that. And pregnancy, absolute no-no. Never give a pregnant woman an ACE inhibitor, which is why we're left with all those weirdo drugs in preeclampsia, like methyl dopa and things. Another population group to be wary of with ACE inhibitors is those of African or Caribbean descent. So they are much more likely to experience the dangerous side effect of angioedema, which we'll talk about in more detail in a second. And they're also less likely to have the beneficial results of ACE inhibitors on blood pressure. So start elsewhere with your blood pressure management in patients of African or Caribbean descent. Mm. All right, so side effects, as you said... Uh, dry cough and angioedema are two of the main side effects that go hand in hand. Well, you said angioedema. You said something. (laughs) So they're they're two of the main kind of idiosyncratic ACE inhibitor side effects you wouldn't expect, and that's because uh, angiotensin-converting enzyme also breaks down bradykinin. So if you stop uh, stop the breakdown of angiotensin 1 into 2, you're also going to accumulate bradykinin, which results in a cough, which is very common. 
and then more rarely angioedema, but that can be the dangerous one because if that happens in your airways, that can potentially be fatal. So absolute contraindication. If someone's had previous angioedema, then not to have an ACE inhibitor. Other side effects kind of more follow on from the effects of the drug. So hypertension can obviously happen in someone who's reliant on that renin angiotensin system to maintain their blood pressure. High potassium, as we said before, and a reduction in glomerular filtration can be catastrophic sometimes if they've only got a little bit of filtration left. So in a patient who is going into acute renal failure, would you cease their ACE inhibitor? I would, yes. Yeah. So that's one of those nephrotoxic medications that you look for on the drug chart when you're admitting an acute renal failure. All right. So what about angiotensin receptor blockers? How do they come into the picture? Firstly, what do they do and when do we use them? Okay. So I've always wondered why we don't just start everybody on angiotensin receptor blockers. Well, some people do. I've got a renal professor that just skips the whole ACE inhibitor thing. But let's go back a step. Why, what's the benefit? Why would you use a receptor blocker rather than an angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor? So they don't tend to cause the dry cough or the angioedema? Because, the, because they don't uh, stop the breakdown of bradykinin. They kind of a m- more downstream effect where they actually stop angiotensin 2 working at the receptor. So bradykinin is not involved at all. However, all our studies and things are based on ACE inhibitors rather than ARBs, and we... Biologically, we're not sure if all the beneficial effects of ACE inhibitors actually come from reduced angiotensin 2, or maybe maybe having some increased bradykinin is actually a good thing. Mm. So that's why we still go for ACE inhibitors first, or okay. most people do. But if they've got a cough or they've got angioedema, you've got to use an angiotensin receptor blocker. But otherwise, similar indications, or the exact same indications, rather. All right, so to finish off with some real-world examples, so what's your favourite ACE inhibitor, Beck? Anything ending in prill. Anything, or that's <laughs> anything ending with prill. So that's the suffix. So when you see something ending in prill, it's probably an ACE inhibitor. Uh, I like to use Prindapril because the drug company gave me some sweet uh, pens. He's lying, please. <laughs> Anyone listening to this, it's not actually true. <laughs> well, someone gave someone some sweet pens because that's all we seem to use is just Prindapril. Um, and that's Covacil or Covacil Plus. Covacil Plus has a thiazide on there as well. So start with 2.5 milligrams and up titrate. So I just wanted to quickly mention here, the up titration is obvious to do when someone's hypertensive. You've got to keep going until they're normal intensive. But it might not be so obvious to do in heart failure, but it actually does have a dose-response effect. So you've got to increase the um, angiotensin uh, or the ACE inhibitor dose um, as far as they can tolerate because that will have a mortality benefit. Mm. So there's also this new one, fosinopril, which is the only phosphonate-containing ACE inhibitor, and that means it's eliminated from the body in both renal and hepatic pathways. So because the, of the phosphonate? Presumably because of the phosphonate. I don't know. You have no idea. <laughs> I'm just saying words. Um, so we think that that one might be a little bit better in people with renal failure because it's also eliminated by hepatic pathways, and obviously that's a lot of... Uh, ACE inhibitor customers have some renal impairment. Mm, okay. So then angiotensin receptor blockers, the ARBs, so they're the ones with the sartan suffix. So tell me sartan is the one I see used most often. That's micardis with a starting dose of 40 milligrams. So if you were going home, Beck, what messages would you take with you from this podcast? I think I think he's trying to, trying to tell us we're going to talk about take-home messages now. Yeah. So the take-home messages are the renin angiotensin system is... Important, but sometimes bad. Yeah. Specifically in people who have hypertension, heart failure, post-myocardial infarction patients, and those with diabetic nephropathy. And the best way to deal with that is by giving ACE inhibitors. Mm -hmm. Or if those aren't tolerated, 
ARBs. Or angiotensin receptor receptor blockers. Thanks very much for listening, guys. Appreciate it. See you next time. Bye. Bye.